the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Science says you're likely to live significantly longer and feel happier if you can pass these eight tests. And later, why aren't prayers answered? You're listening to The Common Good. Everybody, welcome back to the Common Good on this Thursday evening. My name is Aubrey Sampson, alongside my co-host Brian Fromm. So glad that you're with us today. Uh, just, I'll let the people know, Brian. I'm a little snarky today, and just before we came on air, uh, in between our hours, I was saying that it's better to have a wife than a husband. <laughs> you did, and you were you like, say that. "I'd like to point out, you're talking to a husband, right?" Now. Yes, yes. I, I, I don't know how you prove this. I'm not arguing with it necessarily. I like having a wife, so I won't argue with it. I just don't know how you come to prove the hypothesis. My, I. I have a friend and she and I will often be like, I need a wife today (laughs) (laughs) simply because of the things that women do, which would be helpful, you know, but men are great. I love my husband deeply. He's amazing. I just, I just love how you are like the, the, the proud show feminist, but then you fall back into like, Oh, I totally do. I told you this, right? That I'm this weird mix of like, I'm, I'm pretty traditional. Like I want, I want men to hold the door for me. And also I'm like, and give me equality. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. You can take the girl out of Texas, but you can't take the Texas out of the girl. You know what I mean? All right. You're an enigma. I don't know how to deal with it. I contain multitudes as (laughs) does everyone. All right. And you know what Kevin is saying right now? I don't need another wife. Yes. One one wife. One wife. More than enough. Yes. Fair. Fair, fair, fair. I need another husband like I need a what are those sayings? Kick in the head. All in the head. <laughs> wow, you went darker than me. I said kick in the head. That, that's All right. Well, we're joking around, but I do want to talk about happiness, living mm. a longer life. Uh, this is funny. So uh, we kind of touched on this earlier this week, these, this sort of life extension therapy or like, uh, de-aging oh, that's therapy right. where the ultra rich are doing, uh, weird blood transfusions with like young people's drugs and they're in cryogenic baths and ice baths and they're doing red light therapy and ultrasound treatments and that kind of thing. But basically science says, Look, there, there's not much proof, uh, you know, there's not much evidence or scientific research connecting ice baths and a longer life or being youthful. But they do say there are some habits you can develop that if you can pass these tests, that shows signs of a lower risk of early death. Okay. Okay. So there's eight of them. If you can pass these tests, then you'll live a longer, healthier life. Are you ready for the first one, Brian? Okay. So this Let's is how, how I can live do. longer. We're going to, you're going to answer this. We're going to find out if Brian's going to live longer or if Aubrey's going to live longer by this. If, 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 exor- 
if exercise and eating well is near the top of this list, I'm in trouble. So the first one is you exercise. Why do they always get me with these? Whether light, moderate, or vigorous, if you exercise, you have a 46% decrease in the risk of death from any cause. You, I mean, you go to the gym though, right? Yeah, a little less in the in the summertime because sure. uh, yeah, you know. But yeah, I try to. It's just hard when you got multiple jobs and you're got driving kids all around. Like, yeah. I've got all the excuses that everybody yeah. else has. It's yeah. there's there's always an excuse, but it's true. Yeah, it's not rocket science. If you want to be healthy and live a while, yeah, uh, eat well and exercise is probably a yeah. good two spots to start. They say that the most, so I run, that's what I do for exercise. And honestly, in the summer, I've been a little lazy, but I generally run every day, but they say running, uh, six miles a week, broken into three running days a week. So that's easy. That's way less than what I do. That's easy. That's about 30. You can run two miles in around 30 minutes or so, depending on your pace and just do that three days a week. That's so easy. Get on a treadmill, watch a good show, go outside. So, okay, so far I'm living longer than you. Okay. Yeah, oh, oh no doubt. We're both that, gonna... that is going to be where this ends. Yeah, yes. we're both going to pass this one though. So let's see. You aren't addicted to opi- opioids. Oh, I'm good. Yep. Sign me up for that one. They say that opioids re- uh, increases your risk of early death by 38%. So if you aren't addicted, that reduces your risk, obviously, by 38%. Uh, this is kind of interesting though. They say that... Uh, that does raise an interesting point that exercise ranks ahead of opioid, can't even say the word, opioid addiction on the longevity factor scale. So again, they're saying exercise matters. (laughs) So even if you're addicted to opioids, exercise. (laughs) Exercise while taking opioids. What if, here's, here's, well, this would have been dark, but what if you had been like, uh, exercise, eat well, and don't be addicted to opioids. And I was like, oh, for three. <laughs> we, we would have had to. We would have had to have an intervention. Intervention. All right, here's the next one. You don't use tobacco. Oh, I'm good with that. Yeah, I'm, I'm good, good with, with that, that too. According to the CDC, quitting smoking reduces your risk of death and can add up to ten years to your life expectancy. So, smokers out there, take that seriously. All right, here's one. You manage stress. Reducing the level of stress you feel reduces the risk of early death by 22%. Okay. Which becomes difficult because for a lot of people, the call to reduce stress causes greater stress. 100%. It's like, oh, great. Now I got to reduce my stress. So this one's a little difficult. Here's here's how they kind of define like less stress. They say the goal is sleep well and feel at ease in your own skin. So whatever kind of lowers your overall mood, tension, anxiety, sleep, and then somehow feel good about yourself, that probably goes back to exercise. It, it all comes back. Okay, we're gonna we're both gonna fail this one, Brian. You eat a plant based diet. I mean, is it only a plant based diet? Is there, is there nothing else out well, there that I can? Well, here's what they say: you don't have to become a vegetarian or a vegan, but you probably just need to eat more vegetables. So add an extra serving of vegetables or fruit, spinach, something like that, to your meal. I'm pretty good at vegetables. I I I eat a lot of lean meats. Okay. So I think we're okay. I don't. Be I'm careful. Okay. I think I'm there okay. There you go. <laughs> Be careful. <laughs> okay, here we go. Oh, this is where I'm going to fail. You you avoid binge drinking. Just kidding. I'm not. <laughs> you, you're binge drinking with mixed with your opioids. You're done. Uh, they say binge drinking is having more than four alcoholic beverages in a day. 
Okay. And if you can avoid doing that, your risk of dying early goes down by 19%. Um, okay. You get a good night's sleep. This feels impossible for us old people, but um, yeah. if you yeah. get a good night's sleep, your rate of death goes down by 18%. Here's a good one. You have positive social relationships. Okay. That actually reduces your risk of dying by 5%. So having good friends. Okay. Any takeaways from this, Brian? I mean, none of it's none of it's shocking, yeah. but uh, we do know exercise, sleep, you know, eating well, is, especially as you get older, is a is a big one. But I do, you know, social relationships is interesting. Lonely people probably are more yeah. unhealthy and die sooner. Is is you know that that's a little not surprising, but I'm always when I hear that I'm always like, oh, that's right. Okay, you do need people in your life. You do need good people in your life. They say, according to research, the health risk of having just just a few friends. Uh, instead, having few friends, meaning having not many friends, was similar to smoking 15 cigarettes a day and more Weird. dangerous than being obese or not exercise in terms of decreasing your lifespan. So you need to have not a ton of good friends, but two to three meaningful good friends, friends that are fun to be around, mutually beneficial, share common interests. Basically, they say important relationships in your life are one of the keys to a longer, longer and happier life. Interesting. Yeah. I know. So go have friends. Don't yeah. do opioids or yeah. cigarettes with the friends. Yeah. And maybe go for a walk with the friends. Yeah. I like it. I think that's the solution. While right. eating plants, while being an herbivore. So eating plants like a carrot or something while walking yes. with, friends, with friends, rejecting opioids, yeah. rejecting lots of alcohol, alcohol and cigarettes. Wow. You've just solved that. You you'll live forever. The Forget the cryo. Life. You'll live forever. You've solved it. That's right. And that's not very expensive either. So we can all, we can all do that. All right, Brian, we're going to answer, you know, just a really simple and easy question. Why aren't prayers answered? Talk about that when we return. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. All right, we're going to go there. Why aren't prayers answered? You're mm. a pastor, Brian. Yes, I am. Uh, I used to, I, I remember when I was a kid, people would say, God always answers prayers, but sometimes it's no, or sometimes it's wait, hold right. on, you know, something right. like that. I've heard some red light, yellow light, green light. Yeah, thing. yeah, exactly. So God always answers prayers, but just in different ways. But I think that's still a little bit oversimplifying, like, when it's really hard when prayers aren't answered, right? So let's talk about this. Why in your experience are some prayers just not answered? So it's Keller who said, right, that God answers all prayers. We just don't see what's best. It's mm -hmm. I'm, I'm butchering that. He says it better. Yeah. Now that's difficult. And, um, you know, when you're praying for the healing of a child and you're like, well, actually what's God's best. So that's hard. I, yeah. I get it. Like yeah. that could feel a little bit like, I don't know if that's true. Uh, but I think there's an aspect to that. Like mm -hmm. we don't see what God sees. Yeah. Uh, so there's that, you know, I, I always go back to Paul praying that God would take away right. his, uh, thorn his thorn in, his in the flesh and then says, but I, but if you don't, then like, I don't think prayer is just a vending machine where we get what we yeah. want all yeah. the time, which then becomes difficult because there are certainly passages where it's like, keep asking. Uh -huh. I like to give good gifts to my kids, all of this stuff. So yeah, I mean, I was reading certainly... 
Oh, go ahead. I, I just think anybody who's like, I have all the answers as to why this happens in prayer and doesn't, I think is fooling themselves. Yeah. I just think we need to get to the point where we go, what do I know about prayer? I know that I'm called to pray. I'm invited mm-hmm. to pray. That's good. God says he answers prayers. And so I'm just going to keep praying. But yeah, it's a hard one. Like this is, especially when tragedy is at the doorstep, yeah. this this one's hard. Yeah, I was reading uh, Luke 12 this morning where Jesus is telling a parable, but then he goes into like, you know, don't worry about anything. Your father sees you. Uh, he knows your needs. And he delights in giving good gifts to his children. So don't worry about what you eat or drink or whatever. Like God's going to take care of you. But then I was also reading uh, Augustine, I think it's who it was, talking about, hey, the minute you think you've like made sense of God, it's not God that you've made sense of, mm. <laughs> you know? And yeah. I think that there's something about that in prayer, this sort of sort of paradox of like, we are, you're right. We're called to ask, shamelessly ask, I think is what have the shameless audacity to keep knocking Luke talks about, and God loves to give good gifts. And also we're not God, you know? And so it is a, it is sort of a, it's a strange paradox and mystery, I guess, to enter into. They're writing about this Bob Russell over at Church Leader, seven reasons why prayers are not answered. And I wanted you and I to kind of wrestle with this to see if we think we agree or disagree. So here's the first one. He says, the, uh, I don't know if this is like an order necessarily, but one reason why prayers are not answered, unconfessed sin. Mm. He's uh, quoting from Isaiah 59. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. I this one's I struggle with because right. we've got we have Jesus now right and so for mm-hmm. those of us who are in Christ our sins are forgiven and are always being forgiven whether or not we confess them or not you know scripture says that like as far as the east is from the west God has removed our sins and that God remembers not our sins right and so I struggle with unconfessed sin being a reason because that puts a lot of pressure on us to be performing in order for our prayers to be answered. Um, but certainly there might be times of this. Like, I think you have think to use so. some wisdom in this, right? Like if I'm praying that if I'm having an affair and praying that I can like be with this person I'm having adultery with, that's unconfessed sin. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. so, so, so I don't, again, I, I don't want to say God will or won't, but I think you have to, you have to be wise in considering your unconfessed sin as part of why God isn't hearing or answering the way you want him to. Yeah. I think obviously in scripture, we see unconfessed sin is a block of some sort, but I totally, I also agree with you that like, if all of my prayers dependent upon me being perfectly clean, yeah, like that's a, that's a really high bar that, but we're also told to confess and repent and that that seems to have a, that's true. (laughs) That seems to have a, a reconnection, if you will, application. So mm-hmm. again, it goes back to what do we know? I know I'm supposed to confess my sin, repent yeah. and turn. Yeah. What that exactly means for the likelihood of my prayers being answered. Like I, I tend to agree with you that I don't think it's like God's up there going, man, I'm, I want to answer this prayer, but if you would just confess that one sin that you, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm not sure Yeah. That, that that's helpful. Uh, number two, and also I'm not sure these I like, like these lists. It's like a I, countdown or something. It feels strange. Right, yeah. Right. 
I like these lists, but they are also a struggle where it's like, here's one, here's one verse that seems to imply this. Right. Without the and, context or the whole breadth of scripture. Yeah. Right. So we understand that as we read the list, mm-hmm. list he says, uh, reason number two, an unforgiving spirit. It goes to Mark 11. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your father in heaven may forgive you uh, your sins. So there's something about, gosh, I asked for forgiveness, but I'm willing to forgive other people yeah. that that doesn't work so well. So again, um, I think the call here is to take personal stock of your life and not yeah. just be like, well, I don't care what I'm doing, but I'm just going to ask God for everything. Yeah, that that's good. I think that's really good. Uh, the next one I'm struggling with a little bit too, so you might have to help me with this one. Uh, he says, why prayers are not answered, reason number three, an unbelieving heart. Of course, quoting James here, like when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. The man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. I Here's where I struggle with this is sometimes I think, again, this relies on me. If I... I need to believe the right way. I hear I hear people say this a lot. I'm believing for this. I'm believing for this. And right. I, again, I feel like it ends up being about my belief and the thing I'm believing right. for rather than trusting in God and casting my burdens on him. So I I agree with that. I I even even in James here, I definitely don't want it. None of us want to be the double-minded, you know, man, unstable in all we do. We don't want to be people who are blown and tossed by the wind, like our certainty in the Lord. But I'm not sure if James here was talking about like, um, I wholeheartedly believe that God's going to answer the thing I want, do what I want him to do. It's, I think it's a belief and trust in God, period. Right. The danger of this list is, man, it really feels like it's all dependent on me. If I confess my sin, if I'm forgiving other people, if I fully believe, if I this, Mm -hmm. that. So these verses are true. So there's obviously aspects to this. Yeah. But it's a little, maybe a little too formulaic for us right now. He goes back to James to say, our prayers are not answered. Reason number four, for improper motives. Mm. When you ask, you do not receive, James 4, 3 says, but you ask with wrong motives Mm. that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. I think this gets not just to motives, but what are you praying for? Like, are they godly things? Are they things in God's will that you're praying for? Uh, That's kind of the motives I think it's getting at here. Okay. Well, so... If prayer isn't necessarily, um, you know, all about us, like prayer can't be an act of works. I think that's maybe what I'm kind of like wrestling with here a little bit, but you're exactly right. It is an invitation and we want to have our hearts right before the Lord. So I do think like part of prayer is that confession. Part of prayer is inviting God to transform us so that our prayers will be aligned with the word of God and the will of God. And then I also think like, you know, cause sometimes it's like, well, why should I even pray? Some of it is like you said earlier, Brian, we're invited to, and yeah. Jesus taught us to, and we get to, like, we get to have a conversation with God about the things that are on our hearts and on our minds. So anyway, right. I think let's trust in, in God's strength, not necessarily your own when we're praying, but do the work you need to do in your heart in order to, um, in order to hopefully be praying in a way that is aligned with the heart That's of right. God. All right, coming up next, Brian, there's been some more church splits. We're going to talk about health and depression and anxiety related to them. We'll have that conversation when we return. You're listening to The Common Good in AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Um, Okay, uh, over at Christianity Today, Brian, our friend Bob Smetana is writing about United Methodist clergy 
they've been going through the ringer in recent years with uh, church splits, essentially, you know, amongst the other things that just like all pastors have been dealing with the past few years. But this is kind of interesting. A survey of 1,200 United Methodist clergy found that half have trouble sleeping, a third feel depressed and isolated, half are obese, and three quarters are worried about money. They say almost all of those measures have worsened in the past decade. That's wild. So overall, United Methodist pastors feel worse and worry more than they did a decade ago. Now, um, Bob is making a connection between the church splits, what they've been through, and this mental health stuff. I'd be curious if you surveyed groups of pastors in different denominations, if this right. wouldn't be true all around. Um, you know, do you, what are your thoughts on this? Interesting to me. It's wild because I, I didn't think that, that this is what it was about. I thought it was more about the splits and what's going on. But instead, mm-hmm. Bob's written a whole article here with lots of uh, statistics from this study that just say over the last decade, I don't know that this is at all a United Methodist thing or it's just pastors in general or yeah. people in general. Yeah. The percentages here are not small in the amount of, of where their health is going. We talked about healthiness earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, obesity, lack of sleep, bad mental health, always tired, lacking wow. energy, pre-diabetes, wow. all of these things. Oh, wow. So I've got a couple thoughts on this. One is this has been a stressful last five to 10 years, mm-hmm. uh, but that's probably all the more reason to take better care of yourself. And uh, the United Methodist Church has been going through a lot of things, right? They've been that there have been lots of splits, there's been lots yeah. of debates, there's been lots of stuff. So uh the setting is there. I also think this is an indication that the clergy in the United Methodist Church are getting old. Oh, that they, interesting. This, is not, interesting. this is not a young denomination. I think my guess is the average age of a United Methodist clergyman uh is higher than it was 10 years ago. And what happens when you get Mm. older, you start having some of these issues. And so it could be a little bit of a chicken or the egg thing. Yeah. Um, But yeah, it says about a third of the pastors in the survey said they dealt with conflict or difficulty due to the current schism in the United Methodist Church. I think also what this reminds us as pastors and as people is that uh, big things at work, big things in the church, they have a toll on your physical well-being and you yeah. got to know that and take care of that or yeah. it will it'll end up like this do you feel like in general you don't necessarily even have to answer for yourself but the pastors you're in communication with and relationships with would you say this is true for them as well or does it just depend case by case i think it's a case by case i i mean i don't know that i'm like well all the people around me are doing poorly yeah um I just, you know, I Aubrey goes back to like when pastors are normal people, they do better. Like when they have friends and <laughs> yeah. when they have hobbies and when yeah. they have uh, uh so interests outside of the church and it's friends so that don't true. all go to their church, they do better. And I struggle mm-hmm. with that at times. At times I'm mm-hmm. good at that, at times I'm not. But yeah, you know, there's got to be pressure releases. And I think what's going on in this article, yeah. the United Methodist Church is they're getting older. The stress is coming, yeah. all this stuff, and and it's just leaving them in a bad way. I just think, you know, this is true for everybody. If all you do is think about work, 
hang out with work people, talk about work. Yeah. You're going to be in a bad spot. But for some yeah. reason, we don't think that way about churches. It's totally the same thing. It's not any different. You know, what's funny is our, our, some of our church staff were getting together talking about how a few weekends ago, several of them had just like social events, like showers, weddings, hangouts, all church people. But (laughs) a few of our team were like, you know, it was so fun. It was so good to connect. Like I love the community time. And yet everywhere I went, whether it was the wedding shower or the baby shower or the fire pit, I got cornered and somebody was complaining about something at the church. And (laughs) and, uh, these, you know, a couple of our staff members in particular were just kind of like lamenting what something you and I have talked about, Brian, before is that it does, it does feel hard when like your work and your friends and your social interaction, your community is all the church when you're the church leader, because you kind of can't separate work from friendship or whatever. And you can't just sort of be somewhere neutrally, right? Right. It's one of the reasons when my kids were younger uh, that I really enjoyed um, coaching their teams Mm. because it was was like, you know, it's outside, unless it was basketball, but, you know, baseball, soccer, it was outside. It was with my kids and it was with a group of people that weren't in my church. It's also why I love – I'm – I'm well beyond coaching my kids teams They're They need better coaches than I am, <laughs> but it is why I love, like, you know how much I love when my son plays baseball and just hanging out with people at the games. Yeah. Nobody's like, tell me about the inner workings of your church. Right. Like, no one's let no. me know. <laughs> I didn't like that one sermon last week. Like no one's right. doing that. Right. <laughs> and so it does provide some perspective where you're yeah. like, Oh, Okay. Like we, this is not that big a deal. Like this is not the end of the world. And so, you know, that none of this is rocket science, but it doesn't surprise me that these pastors are doing poorly because they're getting older and they're, Mm. they're going through stress and all this stuff. But the question just becomes, what are you going to do about it? Well, that's what I was just thinking. So for the pastors out there, out there that are stressed, overtired, obese, not well. I mean, I almost think we didn't plan this, but this goes back to our first conversation. Like you probably need to begin getting some exercise, eating well, making sure you're not going to like, um, numbing or avoidance through like substances, right. Or, you know, do, do the, do the work to like go outside on a walk, be with friends. It's that Sabbath thing. I, Man, I'm telling you, I I, t- th- I think I mentioned this. I went to I went to the Pacific Northwest a few weekends ago and didn't realize how much I just needed like right. fun and delight. And so I scheduled it into my week last week, and I'm going to schedule it into my week again this week because it does. You just start to realize how much your soul needs some time to rest, yeah. and breathe, and just take care of yourself. So some of it might be like you're saying, if you're an older pastor certainly time to think about is it baton passing time but are you taking care of yourself in ways that are good for your soul and your body and your mind and getting the rest you need for sure so that you don't burn out in this season yeah and some of it's just take a walk yeah i think that's good not everything needs to be the the, the problem with our phones and with our computers and everything is the beauty of it is that you could be accessible everywhere and the and the the struggle of it is you could be accessible everywhere. (laughs) And so 
you know, if you're on vacation, check an email and you're doing, you need spots in your life where you could just shut yeah. it down. Yeah, totally. You could just shut it. It doesn't even need to be a whole day. It could just be a couple hours. Yeah. Disconnect uh, for the world we live in the church world. You need people in your life that aren't always wanting to talk to you about church and whose yeah. view of you is not contingent upon how the church is quote yeah. unquote doing. Uh, that's, You've been in those situations, right? You're in social situations, you're having fun, and then someone talks to you about the church and it feels like the balloon gets popped. Totally. And you're just like, well, I don't want to do this. There's certain friends of mine and family, I've told them, I don't want to talk about church. Oh, good I don't for you. want to. But good for you. Then they kind of look at you like, <laughs> why not? Because for them, it's kind of a, like, it's a, it's a side deal. It's yeah, an interest. For, right, this, for right. us, it's our life. And you're like, just I need a break a for break. this. You don't exactly. want to talk about your job right now, right? My, our, I'll say one more thing. My, uh, our worship pastor was teaching us about the art of the pivot in conversations where if someone starts to do that to him, he'll ask them about like their grandchildren or something nice. else. Nice. He's I've like, done every, stuff like that Everybody for sure. loves to talk about their grandkids. All right. Coming up next, we've got some good news to share with you. Send you off this evening with a smile on your face. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. It's the end of the show on Thursday night. We just want to share some good news stories with you. Here's the first one. The FDA has approved the first ever pill to treat postpartum depression. I oh, think wow. it was a first ever pill. Wow. The Food and Drug Administration a couple weeks ago approved a medication called Zoranolone for the treatment of postpartum depression, a severe form of depression that some mothers experience after giving birth. There is a treatment that can be given via intravenous injection at a hospital, but Zoranolone or Zoranolone is the first pill that can be taken at home. Having access to oral medication will be a beneficial option for many of these women coping with extreme and sometimes life-threatening feelings. That wow. is such good news. The medication is taken once a day for two weeks. Clinical trials showed that it has improved symptoms like anxiety, difficulty sleeping, and social withdrawal as early as three days after taking the first pill. Wow, that's amazing. That's crazy. I saw this next story. College football player gives his full ride scholarship to his teammate. What? For the last four years, Zach Conti has juggled going to school while holding down multiple jobs, all while playing football at Eastern Michigan University, and his hard work was noticed. To cover his tuition and bills, Conti has been taking on landscaping and home demo jobs while also dealing with the recent news that his mom needs to find a kidney donor. Mm. He shared with teammates that he was thinking about quitting the team, and his fellow offensive lineman, Brian Dooley, didn't want to see him give up his passion. Conti's determination on and off the field pushed me harder, Dooley said. Dooley's a grad student. Mm. Uh, Dooley is in the last year of eligibility and worked with their coach to give Conti his full-ride scholarship. The offensive line brotherhood is something that's hard to break. We have each other's back. Conti was stunned by his teammates' generosity. It just felt unbelievable. Like, I felt my hard work had paid off. There's 90% of me that thinks that's an awesome story. And there's 10% of me going, Who's paying for the other dude's college? Like, if you're the parents, how it's grad school. So he's probably doing it himself or getting a loan. But, like, if he went to his parents and was like, I'm giving up my full ride. ride. I'd be like, nope, sorry, son. I'd be like, I'm so proud of you. And how are you paying for your grad school year? Because obviously he's got a full ride scholarship. Mm -hmm. He might need it. But anyway, yes, good good question. (laughs) All right. Uh, Here's another good story. For the first time. 
Scientists have found marine creatures under hydrothermal vents. Okay, I never understand these like marine biology stories, but let's see what we can discover. Marine researchers found a new ecosystem supported by hydrothermal vents deep under the sea. A recent expedition was led by the Schmidt Ocean Institute with a team traveling to the East Pacific rise off of Central America. They dropped an underwater robot more than 8,000 feet, which overturned chunks of volcanic crust and discovered cave systems teeming with worms, snails, and bacteria living in 75 degrees Fahrenheit. The discovery adds a new dimension to hydrothermal vents, showing that their habitats exist both above and below the seafloor. They also found that there are tube worm-like creatures moving through passages underneath the seafloor, which travel through vent fluid to colonize new habitats. Dang. These discoveries are huge as scientists are always looking to better understand the deep sea. They say finding this new ecosystem is truly remarkable and provides fresh evidence that life exists in incredible places. Wow. Huh. The ocean's it's wild. Great. The, that is that is the takeaway there. Yeah. The ocean is wild. All right, U.S. scientists improve upon earlier nuclear fusion success. Hmm. You said you don't get marine biology. I don't get nuclear <laughs> fusion. Oh, I, I really understand it. Good. You can explain <laughs> it to us later. For the second time in less than a year, scientists at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California achieve net energy gain in a fusion reaction. In December, the team used lasers to produce a fusion reaction that created a net energy gain, a first-of-its-kind accomplishment, and a giant step forward in the quest for technology that can provide limitless clean energy. On July 30th, the team repeated the fusion ignition, and this time generated a higher energy yield than in December. The energy department is thrilled with its milestone, declaring mm. it a, quote, major scientific breakthrough decades in the making that will pave the way for advancements in national defense and the future of clean power. Like, all that sounds awesome. I don't understand many of I the words I just read there. I don't know what it means. And I watched Oppenheimer where they talked about fusion and fission, and I still don't understand. So that's awesome. Like, I, Ho this isn't what you did. Hopefully that's good news. This isn't what you did, but that was like the classic, like, do you understand nuclear fusion? Well, I watched Oppenheimer. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously, yes, I do. All right. Here's the last one. Let's hope we can understand this one. Study finds taking as few as 4,000 steps a day can reduce risk of early death. Wow. There is a theme in today's theme. show, which is get out there and go for a walk. A new study has shed light on the number of steps that should be taken in a day for health benefits, and it's lower than previously thought. Looking at data from more than 226,000 people around the world, researchers from John Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Medical University of Lodz found that taking more than 2,300 steps a day is enough to help the heart and blood vessels. Once you reach 4,000 steps a day, every additional 1,000 steps up to 20,000 reduces the risk of dying early by 15%. This applies to all ages and all genders. Oh. With people 16 under benefiting the most, for many years, people have been urged to get in at least 10,000 steps a day, and doctors still recommend walking as much as possible since getting up and moving is good for the body and the mind. Wow. Fascinating. We've been told to exercise a lot today. Is that the voice of God speaking to us, Brian? What do you there, think? There is a, there is a theme here today <laughs> that is like yeah, exercise, wow. leave your opioids at home, exercise <laughs> with friends. 
Yeah. And uh, yeah, I, I don't know. This does feel like a little bit of God just going, hey, hey, this is for you. This is on you right now. I think this evening when we get home, it might be time for a family walk or something like that. We will see. Hey, we've got a great show for you tomorrow. Reflections on Tim Keller again. Brian's going to give me a quiz. We've got another top five list. We're also going to share some facts and myths about pirates. So it's going to be a lot of fun. We hope you'll join us again tomorrow. Thanks so much for being here with us today. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson. We'll be back on 4 to 6 p.m. tomorrow. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.